You are listening to the official podcast of Salem Tabernacle in Beacon, New York. A community of people devoted to experiencing life as God meant it to be. Today's gospel reading is from Mark 8, 31 through 38. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. The Gospel of the Lord. My wife is amazing. Simply put, 15 birthdays I have celebrated with you, and unlike me, you haven't changed because you haven't needed to. You've been as virtuous and amazing and steadfast and consistent as you were when we celebrated for the first time together. You had really good parents, and they're very excited behind you right now, and it's, they're definitely worthy of praise and acclaim for raising you. They did a very good job. I still remember when uh, my father-in-law walked Jacqueline down the aisle, and up until that point, I really trusted him and thought he made really good decisions. And then I was like, wait, you're handing her off to me? You know what I just did, everybody? I just sat on a communion cup, and it exploded all over my behind. This is who Jacqueline married. That's why I'm wearing gray on gray like I don't know what I'm doing. Like I look like a storm cloud right now. Just needed to tell everybody that. But happy birthday to Jacqueline, not to make it about me or anything here. You all may be seated this morning. Look at this, Salem. Look. What is happening here? Ugh. I sat on Jesus. Well, you're right. I didn't yet because we didn't bless it yet. Because we're super Catholic. And so you have, to, you have to put the magic spell on it first. And then, got it. Okay. That was a very sarcastic joke I just made to get started on the right foot this morning. We're in the middle of a series called Strength in Our Hands. Did everybody know that? We're in the middle of a series called Strength in Our Hands for the work of rebuilding. What do we need to rebuild? We need to rebuild the walls of our life because this pandemic, although we've handled it very well as a church and although we're coming through at a good pace and using wisdom, and, and, and endurance, it still has injured us that we haven't been able to be together. It has stunted our spiritual life to an extent because we weren't created by God to worship at home. We were created by God to gather and worship. That's what God made us to do. And so, yes, there's some injury here. Yes, we've, we've all gotten lethargic in certain ways and complacent in certain ways. And 
you know, we, Jacqueline and I were laughing. We were listening to a comedian the other day, and he said, you know, when I look at my grandmother's photo albums, you see pictures of people doing amazing things, like, like pictures of people during the war, like making things to send abroad for the soldiers. And like, it was just this, like, they took pictures of stuff that were outstanding. And he said, one day when my kids look at our pictures, they're gonna be like, oh wow, you had breakfast. Oh, you used the camera to take 100 pictures of yourself driving, driving. The car was moving, and you took pictures of yourself. And it's normal for us now. Somebody gets the vaccine, and it's like, got the vaccine. Like, and we're all cool with this. And it was just dawning on me slowly, like, we have to fix how comfortable we've come, how comfortable we've become letting everybody know every inch of our life and not realizing how unbelievably egotistical it all is. If this is your first time here, welcome to Salem Tabernacle. We usually preach very positive messages. But I'm serious, like we're getting used to a level of selfishness that's not okay. We're getting used to a level, you ready, of confirmation bias that is not okay. We're engulfed and enmeshed and surrounded by sanctuaries of our own opinion all of the time and don't have enough people in our life who push back on us because now when people disagree with you, relationships end instead of getting deeper. Disagreement used to deepen a relationship. We used to say corny things like two puzzle pieces have to be opposites for them to fit together and now we only want to be around other puzzle pieces that are exact same shape as we are and guess what? You don't get to see any pictures because they don't fit. Iron doesn't sharpen iron anymore. We beat each other over the head with it until somebody wins. I don't even know where I'm going with this. I just feel like the Holy Spirit said, you're wearing gray on gray. You might as well just give up on everything you planned and and preach what you want to preach. You sat on a communion cup today, kid. All right. Here's what we'll say. Sin destroys things quickly. Love puts it back together way more slow. One chapter in the Bible is sin. Genesis 3. The rest of the entire Bible is love putting it back together again. Sin breaks things down quick. I've heard people, I've said this too over the years, I say one negative thing to you, honey, and it is like the worst thing ever. I say 400 positive things, and it's like you don't even care. Anybody ever been there besides me? Any brave souls? Right? Turns out we're wrong for saying that. Sin destroys things quickly. Love puts them back together very slowly. One chapter in the Bible destroys everything. All the rest of the chapters in the Bible slowly put it back together again. So do we have to build the wall? Yes. Is it going to take 2021? No. We're going to be rebuilding from everything that kind of disintegrated in 2020 for a long time. Everything happened in 20. All the things that could have happened in the world happened in 2020. And we weren't able to gather in the midst of it. So love works slowly. If you're in a relationship, if you have children, if, you're, if your life feels like it was a little broken down, please understand the slower God takes to put it back together again, the longer he wants it to last. 
What does it say in the Proverbs? An inheritance gained hastily will come to nothing. Jesus moves slow. So slow. Annoyingly slow. Our daughter was heard praying in the bathtub, and she said, I can't believe you haven't answered my prayer yet. I said, get used to it, Sophia. He moves slower than customer service sometimes. Anything he does slowly is something he wants to last longer than the slowness that it took to put it back together again. Listen, forgiving is how God serves us. And so repenting is how we receive that service. Forgiving is how God serves us. He serves us by forgiving us, making us whole, not just saying it's okay what you did, but making right the thing that caused the sin in the first place. He forgives us. He doesn't just, forgiveness isn't just, I'm not going to hold you accountable. Forgiveness is I'm healing the thing that caused the sin in the first place. He forgives us as a way of serving us. And so repenting is the way that we receive that service. It's the way that we say, yes, Lord, you can wash my feet like Peter. Which means repenting is also how we love and serve our neighbor. Repenting is how we love and serve our neighbor. Not just repenting for things that we've done to them, but even repenting for the things that we do privately that seem like they have nothing to do with anybody else but ourselves, every time we repent, God cultivates more fruit in our life. And every time there's more fruit in our life, there's more food for the world around us coming off of our life. And so repenting has gotten scandalously individualized. Let me not even say scandalously. It's gotten idolatrously individualized as if I'm the only one that matters to the thing I did wrong. Every time I do something wrong, it doesn't just matter to me. It matters to my heavenly father. It matters to my family. And it matters to all of you, even if you don't know and you won't know what those things are, it still matters to this family. So every time I repent and every time God heals me, it doesn't just strengthen me, it allows more food to grow on my life for you. A church that is constantly repenting is a church that's also cultivating the Garden of Eden in the lives of the world around them. The world gets better when we repent. The world gets better when we turn from our ways. The world doesn't get better when we say amen on Sunday. The world gets better when we say, Lord Jesus, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner, on Monday. The world isn't getting better because of what we just did. The world is only going to get better if what we just did produces fruit that lasts until Wednesday. So look at your neighbor because we can do that now and say, remember. Oh, you didn't say it like I told you to say it. Say, remember, don't forget, I'm going to remind you, gently, I'm going to remind you. Repenting is gardening. God has taken his sword of destruction and violence and turned it into a plowshare. And he plows our life with what used to be violent judgment is now the cultivating of a patient gardener in our life. So as we repent, we repent because the good gardener is already at work in our life. You don't repent to get closer to God. You repent as the evidence that he's already drawn near to you and something is happening. Something's going on. John 14, 26 says this, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, 
whom the Father will send in my name. He will teach you all things. And this is one of uh, me and this is one of my brother Frank's favorite verses in the Bible. And he will bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. The Holy Spirit, one of his jobs is to bring to our remembrance everything that Jesus ever said and ever taught. We want to be Lentecostals this Lenten season. We want to be people who are filled with the Holy Spirit, and the work of the Holy Spirit as we journey to Easter is simply the work of repentance. Let the Holy Spirit bring to our remembrance. See, one of the sins we commit is we think we know what it is we need to repent of. One of our worst sins is thinking we know what we've done wrong. We know what we've done wrong about as much as we know what's wrong with us when we puke. We need to go to a doctor, and a doctor needs to tell us what it is. I just know that I'm sick, but I don't know where it's coming from. Yes, my sins that I commit are symptoms. Going to the Holy Spirit is the one who reveals to me where the symptom is coming from. And it usually will not be what you thought it was, because what you thought it was was probably also a symptom. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. I'm going to... When we hear about Jesus telling us to take our cross, here's one thing we need to know about the cross. I want you to remember this phrase for the rest of Lent. The cross is the altar that alters. The cross is the altar that alters. The cross is the altar that alters. It changes you. It transforms you. It makes all things new. It doesn't make all new things. It makes all things new. The cross is the altar that alters. Jesus, in this, in this story, it says, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things. He had to teach them that because it wasn't in them to know that the Savior of the world would have to suffer. It was only in them to know that the Savior of the world was going to end suffering. And so he needed to teach them about the cross. The cross isn't what they thought it was. The, the Messiah wasn't who they thought he was. And he needed to teach them what it was. He needed to teach them that redemption comes through suffering. Quick philosophical point. God didn't choose suffering as the means by which he would redeem us because that would mean that God is evil and that suffering has a place in him. That is not what happened. God's goodness was going to happen to this earth whether we sinned or not, sin just determined the way in which God's goodness had to happen. God's goodness was always going to happen to this world, whether we sinned or not. Sin just determined the way that his goodness was going to cooperate with us. His goodness is so good that it was going to wait to see what we did and then happen to what we did no matter how we did it. So in your life, in your marriage, God, your sin, your bad behavior can't, determine, can't keep God's goodness from happening. It can only determine how it has to happen. If Ron Green comes up here and hugs me, God's goodness will happen in fruitful embrace. If Ron Green comes up here and punches me directly in my face and knocks me out for wearing gray on gray, which would be right and true for him to do that, 
then God's goodness would happen in the way of healing and restoration. If we love, his goodness happens in fruitful embrace. If we hate, his goodness happens by way of healing. We cannot keep it from coming. We can just determine the course of action it has to take. So Jesus teaches his disciples that from now on, you need to know as disciples that the way you redeem the world with me is through suffering. If you spend a life avoiding suffering, you will spend a life avoiding how you love your neighbor best. We cannot love our neighbor without bearing their burden. We cannot love our neighbor without empathy. We cannot love our neighbor without feeling what they're feeling when they're feeling it. We don't love our neighbor by telling them how to get out of their suffering. We love our neighbor by joining in it with them and feeling it with them long enough for it to actually become our suffering. Because what does Jesus say? He says, take up your cross and follow me. Why is that very peculiar? Because the question becomes, what is my cross? The only way I can answer that is if I say, what was his cross? And what was Jesus' cross? Mine. What was Jesus' cross? My cross. Did he not carry my sin and shame? Did he not carry my burden? Did he not carry the thing that takes me down? The Bible says that Jesus fell, and when Jesus fell, they, they placed a man, Simon of Cyrene, to take up his cross with him. Do we know the story? I'm wondering now, as I grow in my knowledge of Jesus, I'm wondering if Jesus fell, like we know he fell, I'm wondering if he fell because of the pain, or if he fell because Simon had fallen, and Jesus needed to get lower than Simon in order to bear Simon up. Was his falling the falling of a helpless man, or was his falling the falling of a God who will fall farther than we fell so that we can, he can get under us and shoulder us back up again? We think we know why he fell. He falls for more righteous reasons than we fall. He fell because Simon fell. He got low enough to pick up what Simon couldn't carry. His cross, we call it his cross. For 2,000 years, the church has called it his cross. Want to know why it's his cross? Because he stole it from me. He took my cross he minded my business. He was a busybody, and he took my cross, and he took my stuff, and he carried it for me because he said, kid, you are going to fall too many times, and you're going to mess up those gray pants like you did the green ones, and I'm going to carry this for you. He made it his cross. It became his cross. It was mine, which is why Peter rejects Jesus when Jesus says, I'm going to suffer and die at the hand of the Romans. And Peter rebukes him because Peter knows crosses are only for people who don't do what Jesus does. But Jesus robbed me of my cross. He took it from me and he made it his. So now when he says to me, take up your cross, I don't have one. You took it from me. So all I can pick up now is yours. And all you can pick up is somebody else's. We've heard deny yourself and take up your cross, meaning it's about me. I'm not picking up my stuff. My stuff's already been carried. When we take up our cross, we're taking up our cross the way Jesus took up his. I'm taking somebody else's burden and I'm carrying it for them. Has anybody ever encountered a sinner before in your life? Come on. You're looking at one, so everybody should put their hands up. 
Has anybody ever been dented by a sinner before, one way or another? We have to pick up those crosses. We have to go to the altar that altars. Number one, at the cross, our worship is altered. At the cross, our worship is altered. The story that my wife read just now is the final temptation of Jesus. It's the last time that Jesus even insinuates that he's encountering Satan one-on-one. He says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. But the minute we hear Jesus say to Peter, get behind me, Satan, we have to go back to the wilderness and say, ah, he's back in a wilderness temptation again. Because that's the only other place where he says that. Away with you, Satan. You shall worship God and him only. And then the only other time he says it again is, get behind me, Satan, to Peter. So what was it about Peter and what he said that was actually the devil tempting Jesus? Let's talk about this for a second. Our worship has to be altered. Whenever we see the temptations of Christ, what we're seeing is what Jesus' power would look like if it was used for the wrong reasons. Whenever you see the temptations of Christ, what you're seeing is the messianic power of Jesus if it would have been used wrongly. So what is the first temptation of Jesus? Make this stone. Come on, I know somebody's hungry. Make this stone. How many of you right about now, if you had a stone and Satan was like, turn this into a pizza, you'd be like, done, because this guy's already talking too long. The pastor, the Holy Spirit showed up already. You sat in communion. We shouldn't even be here anymore. The first temptation, listen to this. I want everybody to hear this. The first temptation of Jesus, the first way that Jesus could misuse his power is to turn stone into bread. The first way that Jesus could misuse his power is to take something that he created and make it something entirely different than it already is so he could use it. Maybe you've been in a relationship with somebody who really shows you that they'll only love you if you become somebody you're not. Maybe you have looked at somebody and, and without realizing it, spent years saying, I'll fall in love with you more if you were just really different than who you are. Maybe you've looked in the mirror and heard the annoying voice of self, which is really, a hijack, is really the devil hijacking your voice, and you're looking in the mirror saying, I would love what I see a little bit more if it was entirely different. Maybe Satan is always trying to get us to turn stone into bread or turn ourselves into something different or turn our spouse into something different or our kids or our church or our job or our success or whatever it is into something entirely different. Jesus says the rock is good the way it is and also I can make bread. But the rock is fine. Just I wouldn't harm the stone by turning it into bread because when I made it a stone, I called it very good and I'm not going to use my power to take something I lovingly created and turn it into something for my own consumption. That's abuse. That's not love. He doesn't want you thinking you need to do that with yourself. We live in a world where it's celebrated now for people to turn themselves into something different. This is nothing other than the devil still saying, turn stone into bread. That's heavy, but it's true. Jesus doesn't turn stone into bread. He turns water into wine. And the difference is so subtle. But wine isn't any less the water. It's just more. The water is still the water but he adds himself to it and makes the water more 
not different, more. That's what Jesus does. He doesn't make the stone something entirely different. He makes the water something where it can remain itself and have more. He doesn't make you different. He doesn't make you an all-new thing. He makes all things new. He doesn't want you to be different than you are. He doesn't want you to the components of who you are to change. He just wants to add himself to your life. And that's what he does by becoming bread for you and by feeding you on the bread of life himself. The way out of a bad self-image is to realize we never should have had a good or a bad self-image to begin with. We were made in the image of God, not ourselves. It's a false fight. It's a non sequitur. We're not supposed to have a good or a bad self-image. We're supposed to be made in his image and glorify him in us. He doesn't turn stone into bread because he likes the stone just the way it is. However, we must be that way for each other. People in our life shouldn't first and foremost feel like they need to be different to be accepted. And this is hard for us to hear. I can almost hear your thoughts clanging around when I say it. But what about the behavior? Last night, my daughter was terrified for some reason when she went to bed. Not the kind of crying that annoys you. It was a different kind of crying that annoys you. <laughs> Amen. One baby gets it. It's a different kind of crying. It was the kind of crying where you knew there was some turmoil. Something was going on. Moaning, crying, waking up, being inconsolable. I'm watching the Knicks. It's the one time they're winning. They're the fifth seed right now, you know. Yeah. Anyway, back to reality. I'm watching the game, and I'm hearing her down the hall, and Jacqueline goes in, and I go in, and Jacqueline goes in, and she talks to her, I go in, and she yells at me because she wants mommy. I limp back out to the seat, and finally, I have this idea. I said, let's let her get up. Let's give her some goldfish, because I also wanted some goldfish. My favorite snack is goldfish and apple juice. I don't care. I don't care what they think. It's delicious. The new pizza goldfish? What? <laughs> Pepperidge Farm, baby. Anyway, again, I don't have ADD. Maybe. Bicycles, charcoal, I'm back. We let her do something we never let her do. Because at that moment, behavior doesn't matter. What she needs to know is that we love her and we're here for her. And we don't want to yell at her to go back to bed to the point where early she learns that if she cries at the wrong time, we won't be there for her. We'll only be there if she cries the right way. I want that girl to know that you could cry the wrong way a hundred times in a row, and I'm going to be there for you the wrong way a hundred times in a row, because I'm your dad. Lights always on, doors always open. You could come to me the right way, the wrong way, or some other way that I don't even know, and I'm still going to accept you. Behavior first is disaster. Love and acceptance first will heal behavior. Be behavior is learned best in an atmosphere of love, acceptance, and security, nothing else. They killed Jesus because he was hanging out with tax collectors and sinners and not calling them tax collectors and sinners. They lynched him because he was with people without telling them they need to change their behavior. 
but their behaviors were changing like crazy. And it turned out, Jesus would say it this way, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, the most moral people ever to walk the face of the earth, ever, unless your righteousness exceeds theirs, you can't get into the kingdom of heaven because it's not about behavior. It's about love and acceptance first and let the Holy Spirit deal with behavior on the inside of the sanctuary of love and acceptance. Nothing changes behavior quicker than love and acceptance. Nothing. It's the same for all of us. We get a like on Instagram and we feel like we're kings of the world. That's how sad it is. This person was rude to me and now they liked this. Everything is better. We're so made for affirmation. I used to have somebody tell me, you're an affirmation junkie. You need too much affirmation. That is, I'm so glad somebody helped me see that that was abusive and wrong. We were made to be affirmed. We were made to need somebody to say, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. We were made to operate best when we're told I love you. That is what makes us operate at our finest is when we know we're loved even when we're not at our finest. That's what changes lives. Everything else changes under the banner of that love. Discipline can happen, but only after that love has been firmly, firmly established. Firmly established. And if you're going to go wrong, go wrong establishing the love too much first. The temptation to worship change, the temptation to worship outcome, the temptation to worship the next thing, the temptation to think my kid will be right when this changes, my kid will be right when that changes, my spouse will be better when this changes, the temptation to worship measurable outcomes has to go to hell where it came from. Everything Satan tempted Jesus with had an outcome. Turn the stone into bread. Jump off the temple and an angel will catch you. Serve me and I'll give you these. Don't go to Jerusalem and suffer. You'll be safe. Everything Satan tempts Jesus with has an outcome. Everything Jesus promises us is left with waiting. Outcome-driven temptation is the quickest thing that we will fall for. We're in this for the long haul, longer than our earthly life we are in this for. You all can't let a baby out amen you this morning. Come on now. God is trying to tell you something. Don't forget how to be in church. If this is challenging you, good. His love is such a challenge. When you don't know his love, his love is the greatest thing that ever happened to you. And when it finds you, you will walk away from friends and family. You will do, you did all kinds of crazy things when you got saved. Remember back to when you got saved. You did all kinds of crazy things. But when you stay in that love for long enough, you are tempted to be legalistic with it. Man, when it first found you, you didn't judge anybody. You just ran at them with your life, everything you had. You lived in today. You lived in today. Then we get used to it. And Jesus is rejected in Nazareth, where people know him the most. His love is so encompassing that we can get used to it. We can't get used to each other's love because our love isn't good enough for somebody to get, it doesn't last long enough for somebody to get used to it. Something will happen tomorrow, and the person you love will annoy you so bad. 
You can laugh. You all can crack up. Your, your spouse is going to happen. Like, I'm telling you. Yeah, clap for it. It's okay. It's okay. Let them know. I love it when I'm preaching about husbands and wives and one of the husband or the wife finally has the courage to yell amen. You know they're getting beat when they get home, but it's okay. At least they had the courage here. Wait till we get home. Wait till we get home. I remember one time a wife stormed out of here and texted her husband from the parking lot, and the man had to get up and go and leave church. Slunk. It's okay. It's okay. His love is so good we can get used to it. That's why in Revelation, the loudest book in the Bible, the final word on everything says, go back to your first love because you are so crazy, but I'd rather deal with that crazy than this crazy. I'd rather deal with me having to tell you, stop, you're talking to too many people about me, than say, when is the last time somebody came to church because of you? He'd rather us go back and be young crazy than familiar crazy. He knows we're going to be crazy anyway. Our worship needs to be altered. It needs to be different. What does that difference look like? It looks like this. At the cross, our love is altered. And we just talked about this. I skipped points anyway, so I'm not going to stay on this one. But at the cross, our love is altered. Because at the cross, we realize that was actually mine. That was actually my cross. He stole it. He robbed me of it. So now when he tells me to pick up a cross, all I'm doing is finding somebody who doesn't know that Jesus took their cross. And I'm bringing them to Calvary. We should be doing this for each other. We should be bearing burdens. Taking up your cross and follow me is Jesus saying, pick up your burden-bearing, sin-forgiving pain-sharing life and carry somebody where they can't go on their own. Four men carry a paralyzed man to Jesus, and here's the good news about what happens when that man gets to Jesus. The good news is this. Jesus will look at the four men. Read the story in any translation you want. Jesus will look at the four men and say to the four men, because of your faith, I'm saying to him, his sins are forgiven. What? He didn't confess, nor did he say he even wanted it. But Jesus is like, I answer my children. Because of your faith, I'll say to him, your sins are forgiven. They brought the guy to get healed. Jesus was never going to heal the person. Want to know why Jesus healed him? Because of legalism. The Pharisees see friends tunnel through a ceiling, bring their paralyzed friend to Jesus, moved and embarrassed and wondering if they're going to get in trouble for literally breaking and entering into either Jesus or Peter's house. We don't know which one, but kind of important. They break into Jesus's house, throw their paralyzed friend down in front of him. <clears throat> Jesus, he says to the man, your sins are forgiven. And all the legalists say is, you can't forgive sins. Only God can. And Jesus is like, you are correct. What is I am God? So what does he do? He says to the Pharisees, so that you may know that I have authority to forgive sins, I'll say, take up your bed and walk. The healing was for the unbelievers. The forgiving was for the believer. 
Jesus saw their faith, which wasn't even right. They wanted the man healed physically. Jesus saw pathetic, wrong, slightly off faith and said, you gave me something, your sins are forgiven. What if that's true? What if you bear somebody's life long enough, Jesus will say, because of your faith, I will forgive the person you've been praying for your whole life, Elder Bill. But they haven't because of your faith. You've done it long enough. So many times you've come to me. So many times you've tunneled that young man down into my presence. I don't care what they have to say. Because of your faith, I say to you, your sins are forgiven. So what if he doesn't pick up his bed and walk? That bed that he made in hell, then Jesus will say, pick it up. What if that's true? Our love needs to be altered. Forget about your stuff. Consume your life with somebody else's burdens. Consume your life with what somebody else is going through. Because you know why? Here's what I'll promise you. If you consume your life with what I'm going through, I'll consume my life with what you're going through, and none of our stuff will be left. How's that sound? I'm going to trust you with my stuff, and I'm going to consume myself with your burdens this week. Steph, I'm going to concern myself with your burden, because I know you're married to John. So I'm going to... You all both wear red today. Power couple. All the way. Bringing us into the presence of God. Matching. All right. Your cross has been taken. You guys are good. I'm going to take somebody else's cross. Tim, I'm going to pick up your cross this week. I'm going to carry your burden, but that means my stuff is going to be left here. Do I have any takers? Well, well, so you, you'll carry my stuff for me? See, what if this happens? What if there's really a partnership in the greatest sense of the word? Not a partnership where we all get together and, you know, pour diet soda and pray for an hour. What if there's really a partnership where we commit to not thinking about our stuff, but letting somebody else know what our stuff would have been. Here's what I would have thought about this week. You take care of that for me. Give me five things that I could take care of for you. That's taking up our cross and following him. It's bearing somebody else's burdens, trusting that somebody's going to bear yours. That is the church that Jesus says the gates of hell cannot prevail against. Because nobody's being egotistical. Everybody is carrying something for somebody else. Jesus will never let the devil take from you what you have lovingly received from somebody else. He might let the enemy plunder your goods, but he won't let the enemy plunder your goods in my hands. Your stuff is safer with me than it is with you, and my stuff is safer with you than it is with me. This means we text, we call, we email, we Zoom, we do whatever, we wear... 37 masks and whatever, whatever we have to do. We do whatever we need to do. It starts in the household of faith. You'll, you won't hear me say this every year, but this year, we need to work on this house together. We need to re-strengthen these walls so that we're capable of going out into the world and walking out into a pandemic-ridden, lonely, overly obsessed with selfies world If people loved Jesus enough, they wouldn't need Bridgerton. <laughs> it's true. 
Some people are like, what's Bridgerton? <laughs> I don't know if you're, oh, whatever. Finally, at the cross, our eyes are altered. Not like my lazy eye, different. I really hope in heaven, Carrie, that he heals my eye. If he doesn't, I'm going to be like, yo. I won't be able to say anything to him. I'll be like, I guess it's perfect that you want me to have a lazy eye. Our eyes are altered. At the cross, we go blind. Want to know why we go blind at the cross? Read Genesis 3. Somebody, I know, I know I have somebody in the room who can yell this out. When Adam and Eve ate the fruit, it says their eyes were, say it loud. Their eyes were open, not closed. (laughs) Their eyes were open, and the first thing they saw, they saw each other's vulnerable naked bodies, and they had to hide from each other. Why? Because they saw the displeasure on the other person's face. Why? Because they had just received the knowledge of good and evil, which is to say the ability to judge. And they took the ability to judge and immediately looked at each other and had to hide from each other and God because they judged themselves and each other as less than. We need the cross to make us go blind so that our eyes can be reopened again differently. The cross is the tree of life. We need to take our knowledge of good and evil. Think about what happened during the election, everybody. Everyone was all about that right or wrong life. Everyone all of the time these days, is only ever about what they think is right and wrong. This is a patented phrase I'm going to use. The world, and honestly, most of the church, does not have a middle gear anymore. We have lost the middle gear. It's either we make somebody a hero or a Satan. We either love somebody or hate them. You either agree with me or you're entirely against me. There is no more middle ground. We have lost the middle gear. The cross gives you the middle gear back. The, Jesus is literally, when he's hanging on the cross, he is the middle gear suspended between somebody who believes in him and somebody who doesn't, and he's content to be there. The cross blinds you to the knowledge of good and evil. The minute I say to a church, acceptance is the way to bring healing. So many people, what about behavior? Because we still have the knowledge of right and wrong, good and evil in our head. We don't handle that knowledge very well. I have it on good authority that the minute we get the knowledge of good and evil, we don't handle it very well. And we're far more excited about the knowledge of evil. Even with ourselves. This is me, after service on a Sunday. Yo, uh, what did you think about that message? I thought it was really good. That's not what I want to hear. Tell me what you didn't like. Right? We're always so much more, even with ourselves. we want to know what the other person doesn't like. And we want to tell somebody what we don't like about them. If we have information that somebody's wrong about something, and we have information that somebody's right about something, let's be honest, which one would we rather tell them? 
We're all so excited to tell everybody how great they are. We love the moment when we can finally say. We love the moment when our spouse steps in it, and you're like, oh, you told me you never do this, and you just did it. This is like Christmas. I don't know, because I feel like you understand, man. There's a reason why you were hanging off your roof that one day that I didn't hear you. (laughs) Jeff is one of my next-door neighbors. He was hanging off his roof in trouble. I was mowing my lawn. I shut my lawnmower off. I heard Jeff yell my name. I figured I'd talk to him later. I started the lawnmower again, and my man was stuck on the roof. (laughs) It's the truth. Oopsie daisies. I love you. But I know you went up on the roof because of what I'm saying here. (laughs) We're so much more excited to point out what's wrong. We need to approach other people with this. Listen to this, and I'm closing with this. For, this is Romans 8, 38 and 39. Listen to every word. For I am sure that neither death nor life, okay, nor angels nor rulers, okay, nor things present nor things to come, okay, nor powers, this is getting interesting, nor height nor depth, watch this, nor anything else in all of creation. Nothing in creation. The serpent is in creation. My sin is in creation. My rejection of Jesus is in creation. My bad living is in creation. The powers that destroyed the earth are in creation. And Jesus says, nothing in creation will ever be able to separate you from my love. There is no choice you can make that is greater than the choice I'm making for you. Nothing in creation can ever separate you from my love. That's why my yoke is easy. That's why my burden is light. But church, the world needs to know that the church's yoke is easy and the church's burden is light because we should be the ones saying to them, nothing can separate you. You can run all the way to the other side of the earth, but your sin is separated even farther than that. You cannot get away from an omnipresent God. You just can't. Well, what about consequence? His love will be a consequence for people who rejected him. Have you ever wronged somebody and then had them compliment you and you feel like a schmuck? Man, I really can't stand them. They're never nice to me. Next time I see them, I'm going to tell them. The next time they see you, they give you a present and say they're proud of you. And you're like, when you're right, love makes you feel great. And it brings you to a good place. When you're wrong, love makes you feel like garbage. But it burns that off of you and you still end up in a good place. That's what, Salem, you can release yourself to clap for this. That's what God's love does, and that is what he's calling the church to do. We are not the heralds of rules and regulations. We are the heralds of good news, things that are already done, telling the world you are more saved than you ever could possibly imagine. That is our message. His love will do a work 
that will defy the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It will destroy it. And all that will be left is Jesus. That is what the cross is meant to alter in us. Let's stand to our feet this morning. That is what the cross is meant to alter. Has everybody taken like 45 minutes to stand up this morning? I mean, like, we really forgot how to be here. It's cool. We'll get it. I want everybody to close their eyes for a moment as we get ready to come to the table of the Lord. Pastor, you're talking crazy. No. Yes. I am. I am talking crazy. You cannot talk about the love of God and sound normal. You cannot talk about the love of God and sound predictable. Randall Worley, one of our overseers, said it this way. Unless you're exaggerating the love of God outside of your vocabulary, you haven't even begun to talk about it yet. The love of God is unimaginably good, Salem. First receive that. John, you can come up here. First receive that. We are the first people to have trouble receiving the love of God. And that's the right, that's the right order. Because the love of God first reveals what is. And whenever the love of God reveals what is, it's hard to look at it. Like there's a reason why Adam and Eve hide. There's a reason why it's hard for them to come out from behind the trees. There's a reason why God has to say, Adam, where are you? There's a reason for that. But then he covers you. And he covers you, listen to me, he covers you in the moment that God is in. And the moment that God is in is the now, the yesterday, and the tomorrow. Revelation calls him the God who is, the God who was, and the God who will be. So that means that Jesus, whenever he covers you, he's covering you in today, he's covering you in yesterday, and he's covering you in tomorrow. That's the only, God can cover you only where he is, and he's in your past, your present, and your future right now. So when he covers you right now, he's also covering you yesterday and tomorrow. We're the ones who have to learn how to receive that. We know it up here, and that's our problem. We know it in our mind. Maria Durso talked about the largest distance in the world is the 12 inches from your mind to your heart. That just that literally just popped into me. That was a long time ago she said that here. But Salem, it starts here. We can't, we can't believe the love of God. We need to control the love of God with rules and stuff because we don't fully grasp that it's his love that transforms. It's his love. His love is a consuming, say it back to me, his love is a consuming, his love is a consuming fire. Does that burn sometimes? Yes, but it also burns off. It also tries. It also reveals. And it sanctifies. You need to know at home 
And you need to know in this room that by the time you say, Lord, I'm sorry, you've already been forgiven. He wants you to come to an awareness of what has already taken place in your life so you can enjoy it with him. You're forgiven. You're forgiven this morning. And if you feel like things are too far back to make right, first, you're forgiven. Then, the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end, the one who is still standing in the mess you made 35 years ago that still haunts you today, he's not done with what you're done with. He's still standing in what you've moved on from. He's not finished being a redeemer yet for the things that you finished interacting with. Pastor, this sounds like magic. It's better than that. Is it mystical? Yes. And as a Pentecostal church, I think we should get this, no? This is what he does. Is it spooky? Yes. Right now, he's standing in the moments before you did the things that you regret the most. And one day, he's going to heal those. That's why the Christian hope is a hope and not a finality. It's not done. Christianity's not done. Our faith is not done. What we're waiting for is not done. What God is going to do is not done. Jesus finished the work of readying the world for the Spirit to come. And now the Spirit is at work in the entire world, making right through the cross everything we've made wrong. Salem, we are going to practice these moments again. We've gotten very functional. We've gotten very on and off. Yes, protocols, yes, social distancing, yes, all of these things, but we need to practice these moments. I grew up under moments like this. I grew up in this church under moments like this, where there was just sort of an ambiguous, a, ambiguous end to a sermon, and the Spirit is just kind of working on you, and I feel like we've even forgot what that feels like. There used to be a moment where I was sitting in the very pews you're standing in, and the, and the worship team would be doing what it's doing right now, and the pastor would be doing what I'm doing right now, and all of a sudden I'd start to feel nervous. Out of nowhere, I would start to feel nervous, and I would feel my emotions starting to engage because I knew the Spirit was dealing with me on something. Maybe it had nothing to do with what the sermon was about. It's just the sermon created the space for even individual revelation. Sometimes what the sermon will do is just poke a hole in the thin veneer that separates us from heaven. So for, if you disagree with what I said, forget about it. It's okay. Forget about it. Pretend I never said it. Just know we poked a hole in the atmosphere just now. So he's talking to you about something right now. Don't look at me. Close your eyes. Look beyond the hills. He's talking to you right now. At home, 
He's talking to you. You let everything else talk to you through a screen, he can too right now. He's talking to you. And I don't know what he's saying because God doesn't gossip. But I know he's asking you. Whatever he's saying to you is underneath this banner. You're forgiven. You're more forgiven than you will ever know in your entire Christian life. Your forgiveness is deeper and wider and stronger and more secure than you'll ever know in this Christian life. So if you knew nothing of it, this is a great start. And if you think you knew how forgiven you were, you need to walk out of here today saying, God, I will never know how forgiven I am. It's better and greater and more outstanding than what I know. It encompasses more. It has healed more. It is continuing to do more work than you will ever know. And here's the thing. It is strengthening you for a life of ministry that can happen in any location you find yourself. Uh, Pastor, I'm at a dead-end job. Pastor, I'm frustrated. Pastor, I'm tired. Pastor, I'm fatigued. Pastor, I'm just so sick. I'm even sick and tired of these moments. I've been in way too many of these moments where the pastor's giving hope. He's going to get you through this one too. He's going to keep on pushing you. He's going to keep on revealing himself to you. He's going to keep on qualifying you until you walk through this earth and know that every place where the sole of your foot treads is land that God is giving you to give back to him. Everywhere you go this week is holy ground because you're on it. Everywhere you go this week whether it's to a great job or the unemployment line, everywhere you go this week, the kingdom of heaven is manifesting itself to you and through you, and God wants some broken water jars and some empty mats in your life this week. The woman who went to the the well at noon, it says she left her water jar and ran to the town. The man who was on the mat, it said he got up and started jumping and followed Peter and John into the temple. God wants some broken water jars and some empty mats in your life. Maybe the first one's got to be yours this week, Salem. Maybe you got to drop a water jar, that thing that you're carrying, that thing that you're laboring with, that thing that you're so sick and tired. Maybe you just got to leave it where Jesus is and go run and tell somebody, I found someone who told me all that I ever did, and he's pretty good. You should come meet him. Maybe you have to take up your mat and go home. We have to break the yoke of control. We have to break the yoke of drawing lines in the sand. St. Augustine talked about the moment when Jesus bent down onto the ground and it says he wrote in the sand. And St. Augustine has a great line. He says, Jesus drew a line in the sand, but he drew a line in the sand precisely because it was sand and the wind is just going to blow that line away because Jesus doesn't draw lines. He's the space where all sides find their happy medium, their home, their fullness. So if Jesus draws lines, he draws lines in sand. So they just go away. One gust of the breath of his mouth. No more lines. If that bothers you, hang out here for a moment. 
I'll fix something for you. I'm not saying that we can be immoral. If you know me enough, you know in my office, I will get you if you're being immoral. We'll talk about it, and I will tell you. But underneath the banner of you're accepted and you're loved and you're forgiven, I will never tell you that if you change your behavior, God will love you more, accept you more, or qualify you more. Because you're qualified, accepted, and loved, you are free to work on your behavior. Should we work on it? Yeah. Starting with me. Let my wife say amen. (laughs) Starting with me. But I'm free. I'm free to be transparent. I'm free to tell you where I messed up. Because I'm free that my position in the kingdom of God isn't altered because of it. It only gives me the access to the one who can heal and forgive and restore. Maybe we're angry at things going on. Ask God, if you're angry, and it doesn't just have to be about what's going on in the world, it's anger shows up in our life for so many unprocessed reasons. If you're angry, just do me a favor this week. Give your anger to God as a gift and ask him to give it back to you. Ask God to give your anger back to you. See, what we're about to do right now is we're about to offer him bread and juice. First, we present these gifts to God, and then he gives them back. And when he gives them back, they're different. It takes a spirit-filled imagination to believe that. We offer you these gifts. This is what we say. I'm going to say it right now. Lord, we offer you these gifts. Sanctify them by your Holy Spirit. Watch this. To be for your people the body and blood of Jesus, the food and the drink of new and unending life in him. What did we just do? We just said, here's something that is normal. I'm giving it to you and I'm asking for it back. But when I get it back, I want it to be transformed. Lord, I pray right now that anyone who's angry, that they would right now offer you their anger. And I pray that you sanctify it and make it for the world the presence of Christ. What does that mean, Pastor? There's an anger that Jesus had that is a restoring, mercy-filled, fiery, flip tables but die for the people whose tables I flipped kind of anger. Replace my toxic anger with an anger that's for the person, not an anger that's at them. Bishop Quentin Moore said it this way, sanctification is when we are angry at people and we become angry for them. You're so wrong, I'm angry at you. But then when we come into contact with the grace of God, we say, you're so wrong, I'm angry for you. I don't care what you did to me as much as now I care that you stop doing it at all. Anger for. 
not anger at. If you're disappointed, offer it to God. He's the only one who wants our garbage. Offer your disappointment, your despair, your insecurity. Come on, Salem, if it's not you, there are so many people on so many different plans and regimens that they've devised for themselves to just constantly hide the pain they feel over who they are and we know this is no way to live but who's going to help them we are we are the ones who need to point out beauty in people that can't see it for themselves. We are the ones who are supposed to tell people, Pastor, you have no idea how awful I've been. I'm Nothing in creation can separate you. The Bible begins with evil being in creation and Adam and Eve sinning in creation and Romans ends with Paul saying nothing in creation can separate you. Game, set, match. Holy Spirit, give us opportunity this week to bear other burdens to Calvary. To assure people of your love and forgiveness. To remind them that you still call them very good. To remind them that your discipline is not hate, it is love. This is the body of Christ, the bread of heaven. This is the blood of Christ, the cup of salvation. Would you partake with me this morning? Thanks for listening to the Salem Tabernacle podcast. For more information about us, including gathering times and our location, check us out online at salemtabernacle.com.